I thought I'd start with my passport this morning because I'm going to wade into something that could be a little tricky to talk about. I, I want to in this series, we're doing something a little bit differently. If you've been around here a while, you know that I love to go through a book of the Bible at a time. I like to go chapter by chapter, maybe even paragraph by paragraph. If it's a smaller book, we'll, we'll take our time a little more. And uh, yet now and again, it's also, it's also helpful for us to take a, a bigger picture view of particular issues that are going on around us. And so for a handful of weeks, we're doing a Currents and Bridges series. And you can have a little fun with that, river currents that carry us along, and yet bridges that allow us to cross over those currents to the other side. And I want to use currents in terms of current topics, current events, things that are going on out there, things that people are currently talking about. How can we bridge from that topic to also be talk about something else that we could be, should be talking about? How do we bridge from current contemporary things into eternal things? So currents and bridges. And it occurred to me, a current topic that's been current for a while and will be for a while still. In fact, there is no real resolution in sight. And I think partly there's no real resolution in sight because the, um, the status quo is actually preferable to either side. Uh, a lot of times, issues like that aren't really looking for a resolution so much as they're being used for a purpose all along the way. But we easily get caught up in them, and it's not surprising because the issues, like this one, are ones that affect people in very personal and very real ways. People that are, are mistreated in, in around issues like this, it tugs at our hearts. We know that's not right. We, we want something to be different even if we're not sure exactly how it should be different. The issue what I want to talk about today, and I, and I want to start with a disclaimer, but I want to talk about borders and mercy. I want to talk about what do we do, uh, for instance, okay, the immigration debate, there, is, there, there are probably two sides of it, and people easily swing back and forth on it. Should we be about strong borders, or should we be about extending mercy to people in need? And my answer would be yes. And so on that note, we can probably save a lot of anguish for Bob by just wrapping up the message right here. But I haven't given you any biblical basis for that answer. And I want you to have a biblical basis, even perhaps some intriguing aspects from Scripture that will give you the opportunity to talk about the same thing if it comes up to bridge from this current to something even better. First of all, disclaimer though. As I already read to the children, our primary citizenship is not of the United States. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have a first loyalty there that actually supersedes the issues of the day. And secondly, we are then, if our citizenship is in heaven, we are, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, we are sojourners. We are resident aliens here. We are temporary residents. When we lived in Africa for many years, many of you know that we lived in Africa, a total of about 10 years. And while we were there, it was stamped in our passport, temporary resident. We were able to stay there and live there and work there for a period of time, but we could not continue there for the rest of our lives. We were temporary residents on a work visa, allowed to be there for a period of time. We knew what it was like to be what the Bible calls, what the Bible calls sojourners or resident aliens. 
People living there who do not belong there, that our home is somewhere else. That's true for us. So even as we tackle current issues like this, we do this from a perspective that says there's a bigger issue, there's a more eternal issue that's even more important. And our first loyalty is actually there. And that loyalty there as citizens of heaven is what makes us good citizens here. Okay, with that disclaimer, let's jump right in. On the issue of immigration or resident aliens, the Bible actually has some interesting Old Testament background on the topic. Did you know that, that, that Israel's heritage is one of, of strangers and sojourners or resident aliens in a land not their own? Abraham is told to leave his own country and go to a place that God will show him. In fact, when he left, he may not have even known yet where he was going. And once he arrives there, he has to negotiate with the people in the land. And as he moves about to this place or that place, and when a need arises, he has to negotiate with the people who live there and belong there. Because God is going to give this to him, but it's not his yet. And though he walked all through it, he never owned it. He had to negotiate and work out permission to be in particular places at a particular time. I think, uh, um, for instance, when he went down to Egypt and he negotiates with the man Abimelech, the ruler there, the son of the king, Abimelech, who, who uh, gave him permission. In fact, Abraham did not fill out his visa application totally accurately, if you remember that story. He fudged a little bit when it came to his wife, whom he called his sister. But that's another story. Later on, in fact, Israel is spoken of in terms of their time in Egypt in Acts chapter 7. God spoke to this effect, it says, that his offspring, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. Who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. The Bible recognizes the reality of temporary resident aliens and the abuse the, uh, the, um, the fact that they are often taken advantage of. Abraham had negotiated to be there. Joseph, remember when Jacob and his extended family, 70 persons in all, according to Acts, they, they, they go down to Egypt, and God is going to have them in Egypt for a total of 400 years. They're going to be taken advantage of there. But how did they get in? They arrive in the land, and they had what you called, you could apply for a visa upon arrival. Okay, some countries you have to apply in advance. Well, apparently because they're near neighbors, uh, uh, Canaan and Egypt, you could apply for a visa once you arrive. But once they arrived, Joseph had to be their sponsor. And Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he brings their visa applications and says, can my family please stay? And Joseph even uses that visa application process, he uses that for more than just their permission to stay in the land. Joseph uses the process in order to bring to the surface some lingering guilt that his brothers need to confess. So Joseph uses the visa program and their need to apply for a visa, Joseph uses that for a spiritual lesson that they need to learn. Joseph is my license. Joseph is my example that I want to use this notion of aliens, strangers, sojourners, outsiders, and those who belong. The concept of borders and mercy, I want to use that. I want to use that in conversations today like Joseph did then so that we can go from currents, we can bridge 
to something even more important. Now, first of all, nations then in the Old Testament, they exercised border control. Nations had borders, nations had boundaries, and they guarded those borders, and nations were also confronted even by God if they did not recognize and respect the borders of others. If you lock your door, if you fence your yard, if you might or wish you did live in a gated community, you believe in borders. Sometimes we believe in borders very practically for ourselves, but we don't want borders at all in a much bigger framework. But if you lock your door, if you fence your yard, it says that good fences make good neighbors. Is that true? You lock your door, you fence your yard, you believe in borders. There's another interesting, interesting example, a storyline, the book of Ruth, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi is a non-resident alien in another country at a time when there's famine in her country. Now, it doesn't go well for the family there, but they can't stay there when the bottom drops out. Her husband dies, her son dies. She has no visible means of support, and she doesn't expect support in the land of Moab. Now she must return back to her home in Israel, in Bethlehem. And when she arrives at Bethlehem, she hopes that there would be the normal extended family structure that might have some hope for her there. Ruth comes with her. Now Ruth is the non-resident alien. You see, they play it on both sides. One of them's an alien in Moab. The other one is an alien once they're back in the land. But Ruth, in the book of Ruth, Ruth is given, first of all, she's given entrance. She is extended mercy. She's extended help in terms that were supposed to be the norm for Israel, even though they weren't normally practiced in that day of the judges. And, And Ruth experiences and receives mercy for immediate help In this land of which she is a foreigner, but not only that, Ruth is given standing. Ruth is made to belong. Because of Boaz, Ruth is made to belong. And Ruth even becomes in in the lineage of Israel's great King David. Ruth so belongs that she's like a great-grandmother to David himself. She's in the line of Israel's hope, Jesus Messiah. Look what God has done through an immigration story. All right. With that in mind, then, first let, let me say that in terms of immigration, in terms of those who are excluded, those who don't belong, we need to be merciful because God is merciful. We need to be merciful because God is merciful. Israel's mercy to sojourners, to resident aliens, is meant to be a reflection of God's character. They're to be merciful to aliens who don't belong because God is merciful to aliens who don't belong, all right? Example, turn to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, first five books of the Bible, number five is Deuteronomy, a re-summarization of the law. Deuteronomy means the second law. In verse 12, Verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Wouldn't you like to have the answer to that question? What does God really want? With all the stuff, with all the practice, even the rituals of things like the Lord's table, what is it that God wants out of us? What is God's desire really? 
Well, isn't it to, to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, to keep the commandments of the statutes of the Lord, which means to walk in his ways, to, to fear the Lord and to walk like him, according to his likeness, in his character. Israel's job and ours is to show God off to the world to show the rest of the world what God is like. Israel is to be merciful because God is merciful. Specifically, if you skip down to verse 18, well, even verse 17, the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords. He's bigger and greater than everybody. The great and the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial. He takes no bribe. That's not how immigration works. 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widows. Haven't you heard that over and over again? How God has a tender spot for orphans and widows. James picks up on that. He says true religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. The most vulnerable in society. But it doesn't end there. He says to, to execute justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners. You were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You know what it is to be outsiders and to need mercy, to be invited in. Therefore, you be ones to extend mercy to others who are outside. When given their own country, Israel is to be merciful to sojourners and to aliens, even as God was merciful to them. Exodus 22, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. One of the things that happens in our society today, because people are in the shadows, because they are in the country but don't have a legal status, they're easily taken advantage of. They're easily abused and taken advantage of. They're afraid to call the authorities because they don't have status. In Leviticus chapter 25, I was surprised. I, I typically thought in lines that, well, first of all, we've got to take care of our own. And if we've got room after we take care of our own, we should also help others. Now, Israel nationally is actually, that's turned a little bit upside down, at least in this one passage in Leviticus 25 and verse 35. The standard for helping one of your fellow brothers or sisters, your fellow Israelites, if you were in Israel, listen to the standard of how you should help one another. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Wow. The standard by which they would help one another was the same way the standard by which they would help others who come to them because of need. So it seems like God's saying, first you extend mercy and help those outside who have no claim. And in the same way as you help them, you extend mercy to those who have no claim on it. In the same way, you also help one another. Kind of turns things on its head. It, it did for me. I hope it does for you. The reality is that prosperity in a nation is going to attract immigration. Prosperity in a nation will attract immigration. And what was supposed to happen in Israel? Israel was supposed to prosper. 
If they walked in the ways of their God, God was going to bless them. It wasn't because they were just better at farming than anybody else. It wasn't because they got irrigation figured out. It was because God would send the rain. God would bless their crops. God would multiply their fields. If they walked in his ways, he would bless them and make them a blessing. And he intended it that way. And it would attract international attention. And others would come. And if they came with evil intentions to rob, pillage, and steal, God himself would defend them. If they came to join in and share some of this blessing, they would come into Israel and they would learn about Israel's blessing coming from Israel's God. God's purpose in blessing Israel was to make them an object lesson by which he could become known to the other nations as well. God intended for prosperity in a nation to increase immigration so that in Israel's golden era, in the days of David and Solomon, Perhaps 10% of the workforce were non-resident aliens. If you look at the, at, at, the, at the resident aliens who were part of the construction crews that are listed for the temple in Solomon's era, it's 10% of the working soldier age population, the military age population, according to David's census. There were a lot of aliens in the country. And their status was that of alien, not Israelite, and yet they were there. And one of the things that happens, it happened with Joshua, it happened with David, it happened with under, under King Solomon, even the construction of the temple, is these, these resident aliens, these sojourners among the Israelites, there was put on them what seems to be an additional burden of public service that was not required of Israelite citizens. I, it made me think of, of some of the United, United Arab Emirates where, where they bring in people from, all the, from countries elsewhere in the world to do all the work for the Emiratis, for instance. I don't know if that's fair to say to them, but sometimes it seems like that. In a very wealthy country, they bring in outsiders to do their stuff for them. Maybe it was like that in Israel, but maybe there's something else going on because the public works service that these, non, that these resident aliens, these non-Israelites, non-citizens were asked to share in and participate in were connected with the service of the temple. The upkeep of it, even the supplying of the wood for the, for the fires, for the altars, for the sacrifices, which provokes the question, why do you need so much wood? Why do you have so many sacrifices? Why do you keep offering these burnt offerings? And questions beg answers. And to be constructing this temple, the temple itself, which was to be the God's grand object lesson of his means of dwelling with humanity, of God's means of extending forgiveness to sinful humanity. How is it that humanity can be received in the presence of God? And everything about the temple was an object lesson to answer that question. And these aliens, these outsiders who have no claim, they are invited in to participate in ways that would put them right in the center of the conversation. What is this temple all about? God's mercy is mercy, you see, because it is not an entitlement. It's not a right. It is given to those to whom are not entitled to it who don't deserve it, who have no claim on it. We have to have borders if we're going to be merciful. Even the temple, 
I described the temple, and they're working on the temple. And as they're working on the temple, they're building the temple. The temple has borders. The temple is full of borders. The temple has a big outer wall. The temple has this, has this wall about four feet high. At, it, it, it crossed what was called the, the court of the nations. And non-Israelites could come that close. They could enter into that very outer court. This is where the money changing was set up. When Jesus comes in, he clears the, the, that courtyard because my father's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is the court of the Gentiles, and you've turned it into a money-changing pit. Because there, in the court of the Gentiles, they could handle international currency, you see. That's where they could do the foreign exchange at a price. And they had taken the court of the nations, where the nations could come and approach God and learn from his temple. And they'd turn it into a den of thieves. And so, even the temple had borders, and those borders, every one of them, told a story. Even the priests were faced with a border that the, the priests could not enter into the Holy of Holies. Only once a year could the high priest, and only with the, with the blood offering from the Day of Atonement, could he actually enter into the very presence of God. Otherwise, they were excluded. There was a border, there was a boundary that they must not cross. And the whole purpose of God's borders was to establish mercy. Think of it. When was the first border guard in the Bible? When did you find the first armed border guard anywhere in the Bible? In the garden. The Garden of Eden. They, because of sin, were excluded from God's presence, and there was an armed guard established at the entry point that they could not pass through, that they would avail themselves, they would take it as their own right for themselves to take of the tree of life, and thus they would live forever in a fallen, broken, sinful condition. God says, because they have sinned, I must exclude them from that tree of life until they are redeemed. So he establishes a border so that he can extend mercy. In your home, I mentioned you, have, you, you lock your door. In your home, your neighbor has no right to walk into your house, to plop down on your couch, to change the channel. I mean, most people in your family don't have the right to change the channel, right? And, and to help themselves to your refrigerator and the vanilla bean ice cream. Oh, no. Your neighbor has no such right because it's your house. It's your couch. It's your ice cream. And that gives you the right to invite them, to have them over, to set them down, to serve them well, to extend hospitality. That which they have no claim to now becomes a wonderful gift freely given to them. And that's what makes it special. Without, without borders, you can have no mercy. Without front doors, you have no hospitality. God establishes borders so that mercy can be given. We understand that in our own salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Remember, at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I think I had that on the screen. Nope. Ephesians chapter 2. There we go. 
alienated from the commonwealth, citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You and I, in heaven's terms, you and I were excluded. We were outcasts. We were strangers in the fact that we were aliens. We did not belong. Okay? We didn't belong. We were excluded. Strangers. Aliens. And yet, verse 19, we are no longer We are no longer strangers. We are no longer aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. In some church circles, some church traditions, the average Christian is here, and the saints are way up there somewhere. And the saints are way above us. Forget about that nonsense. God says that you are fellow citizens, not strangers or sojourners. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the family of God. You have been given the status. Your passport has God's family name on it. You belong to him. You are his child. And in a perfect family, nobody has better access to the father than his own children. And you are God's child. Sometimes we have the sense that God sort of reluctantly will let us in because he has to. God made a promise. He wrote it down. And he's stuck with it because God will honor his contract. And the contract says that anybody who believes in Jesus, no matter how wretched they are, and some of us are, but he has to let us in anyway because he said he would. That's kind of how we understand it and our standing before him. It's not true. He delights in you. He has made you his own child. Your citizen, your passport, your citizenship paper says God's own child. You have as much right and entrance into God's presence as Jesus himself because you and I stand in him. Read Ephesians 1 again. Everything about our access and acceptability before God is in Christ. It's not about ourselves. It's about him. God has done that for us. Heaven has an absolute border, folks. Heaven has an absolute border and nobody sneaks across it. Nobody. And because heaven has an absolute border, because because eternal life is guarded by an angel with a flaming sword, you only get in God's way and that is by his mercy. Heaven has a border so God can extend mercy as widely as he pleases. Illustrate this in terms of immigration today. Appropriating or assuming a right or entitlement to be here is actually identity theft. It's assuming yourself to be something that you are not, assuming and pretending a new identity which doesn't really belong to you and the, and the, and the falsity of it can be exposed and it'll all evaporate at any moment. There's no security there at all. Providing, quote, sanctuary is far short of God's mercy because it doesn't give standing like Boaz gave Ruth. It doesn't give standing like God has given you in Christ. It just winks and nods and pretends you're not there. At least for now, we're not going to say anything. But all of that could evaporate in a moment. Not enforcing immigration law in any country actually encourages lawlessness among people. 
And that is never a good thing for society. It's never a good thing for an individual to encourage them toward lawlessness to better their own condition. We need to have some kind of a system. Nationally, we need to have some kind of an answer that doesn't encourage lawlessness, but encourages the receiving of mercy. That's what Christians, the formal receiving, the intentional extending and receiving of mercy, that's what Christians ought to be arguing for here. We need strong borders in order to wisely extend and exercise mercy. Along with that, we have something in America called birthright citizenship. This is kind of an aside, but I'll throw it out there just to think about. Birthright citizenship means if somebody is born here, no matter the case of their parents, if they're born here, they have citizenship in America. You can be a tourist from Holland here on holiday. And if your child is born during that extended holiday, that child will be an American citizen. Although there's no other logical claim or reason or rationale why they would be. And so that encourages people to find a way, any way, to get here at least long enough that the child is born here and becomes, the term is anchor baby. Giving that family then a link to the country which they might eventually be able to claim um, a right to immigrate immigrate based on. That birthright citizenship seemed like a good idea. You know where it came from? The only developed countries in the world that have birthright citizenship still, because it's in our constitutions, is United States and Canada. Only two developed countries in the world that have that. England, you can, you can go on holiday and have a baby in England and you're not an English citizen. In fact, in Swaziland, you can, you can uh, the mother can be a Swazi citizen, but the baby is not, a, is, is not a Swazi citizen unless the father is a Swazi citizen. That's the way it works in, in some countries. I'm not saying Swaziland is our model for many things. But, <laughs> but the, that notion, that encourages people to do things that are not best in terms of encouraging lawlessness for a better end. God's mercy doesn't work. God, God has made a way to bring you access into heaven, and God has done nothing wrong to get you there. Think of it. Propitiation means God has fully satisfied all the right requirements against us. He has fully satisfied them in allowing us into his presence. God doesn't sneak anybody across his border. You come into his presence abundantly. Nobody sneaks in. We should support a, a strong, healthy, and generous country that wants to invite others in, especially those who are needy and vulnerable, oppressed and persecuted, that we might share our blessings with others. We need to be merciful because God is merciful. And so we would establish borders, not that we keep people out, not that we don't have others come in and drain our valuable resources that we want to enjoy for ourselves. No, we need to have strong borders so that we can extend Mercy, especially to those who most are in need of it. Well, that's a national approach. Well, what difference does that make to you? I don't think there's anybody here in the House of Representatives. I didn't know, Mr. or Madam Representative, you were here this morning. So what are we going to do? We're not going to be the policy makers and shakers on this thing. Maybe we will write letters. Maybe we will make phone calls. But what can I do? How can I take, how can you take the next step in mercy to someone outside? If God is a God of mercy and we are to be merciful because God is merciful, well, where should I be merciful toward outsiders? 
How does that work for me this week? Well, our Lord Jesus said, when people came to him, and he's, he's a model for us here. When Jesus came, he hung with those who were outside. He hung with those who were excluded. He hung with those who were shunned. When Jesus went to high school and sat down in the lunchroom, he sat with the unpopular kids. I know this. Because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And the in crowd said, what is he doing? Doesn't he know who they are? If he's a prophet, he should know who these people are that he's hanging out with. And he should know the kind of people that they are. And nobody who's anybody sits with them. Except Jesus did. And they said, oh, you know, you have all these rituals and cleanliness and all this stuff that we're supposed to do. And you can't do all that if you're, if you're with those. And Jesus said, go and learn what it means. And he quotes the Old Testament here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now he says that in the midst of this instruction about why he's eating with the outcasts, the unpopular ones, the not included ones in society. He's quoting Hosea chapter 6. So let's go back to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. We'll start at verse 1. There's a plea from Israel and a reply from God. First three verses are from Israel. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. God is working with his people. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Even through difficulties, God is teaching his people. He's showing himself. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Wow. There's a hint there of a third day raising up, a third day resurrection, and that we participate in that resurrection. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, for his going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as surely as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. There's nothing more reliable around here than like spring rains, right? As surely as that, God is coming. And God speaks, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like a dew that goes early away. It's fickle and it fades. Like a morning fog, it dissipates and vanishes. It seems to be there, but there's not a lot of substance to it. Therefore, I have hewn them by my prophets. I've spoken harshly to them. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. Because, for, I desire steadfast love, a covenantal faithfulness. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God for them to know me rather than burnt offerings. Israel became comfortable in the ritual. As long as we do the thing we're supposed to do, God will be pleased and we can get on with the stuff that we want to do. If I will just pay my dues, if I will sit and listen to Bob for an hour or however long he speaks, for some reason that's a sacrifice with which God is well pleased and I can then get along with my stuff and I'll have God's blessing for the rest of the week. We can think in those times of ritualistic terms that if I fill the squares, God will be good and I can get on with my stuff. And God says, I want them to know me. I want them I desire most, and the sacrifice that I want from them most is not a lamb on the altar, but it's mercy. 
It's mercy that they give to others because they know my mercy to them, which is what the sacrifice was supposed to teach them. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How do we then, like Jesus, who came, he came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he hung with them. He went intentionally to those who were outsiders. He touched a leper. How do we extend, be agents of God's mercy to those who are outside, to those who are left out, to those who don't belong? How do we exercise mercy to outsiders in need? What if, what if God is bringing the mission field to us? What if God, as he did with Egypt, as he brought the nations to, to the temple, to Israel, what if he's bringing the nations to Brush Prairie? Did you know that the first Arabic-speaking church has started? Not far down the road, just 119 that way, a good way, down to Philida. In our sister church, a church that was formed out of people, also partly from Brush Prairie, who went over there and said, we're going to help you start this church. That church was formed. And to, today, they are hosting Pastor Fayez and the first Arabic-speaking evangelical church in all of Clark County. They have seven families already meeting there, seven Arabic-speaking families that are meeting there, and they are in touch with any new immigrants coming in, whether they be, whether they be refugees or they're coming via visa lottery. There's one family that won the visa lottery. Not the most intentional mercy situation or uh, system out there, but this family from Egypt, a Christian family, much persecuted in Egypt, has now been given permission to come to America, and they are hosting this family. And they are helping them to work through the various agencies and how do they get set up and how do they figure out life here? How do they gather the kind of household things they're going to need, the essentials, in order to, to, to establish a home of their own? How do they settle in? How do they begin to learn English or learn English better? What could we do? I had the chance to meet Pastor Fayez just last week and immediately began to come into my mind, what could we do? What could I do? How could I give? This is wonderful. I would love to be part of a new church plant in the Arabic world. I just didn't realize it was going to be just down the street and that we could be a real and legitimate part of that if we wanted to. I'm looking forward to finding out more next week. But they, do, they, they need to gather household goods and items that new families coming in. That this church, this church can have our outreach to any non-Christian Arabic-speaking family of refugees or immigrants that arrives in our area. They're going to have their contact. They're going to be able to engage with them. And we could be a part of that. Extending mercy to those whom God sends right into our neighborhood. I didn't know that the biggest concentration in Clark County was right up here in the, in, the, in the Salmon Creek to Ridgefield area. Not at all far from us. We could be a part of that. But there's not just outsiders from other countries. There's outsiders. In fact, one of the men in my morning Bible study, we talk about the sermon that's coming up, and, and he, he, he was talking about, you know, there's these homeless guys. They're definitely on the fringes. They're definitely outsiders in society. They're definitely the people that maybe Jesus would have had lunch with. And he says... How would I do this with them? We thought about it. We talked about it a little bit and said, you know, first of all, one of the things you do for somebody like that that is just excluded from society, they're a real person. When you greet them, 
And he just, he's, as he, 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 he runs across these same guys that are in the Vancouver library where he has, he's involved in, his company has a service contract there. And so, so he's there fairly regularly, and he runs into some of the same guys who, especially in times like this, when it's cold or wet outside, they come in there to get warm. It's a nice public warm place where they're allowed. And so they pretend they're reading a book or something, and they hang out there. And so he's a, he can just greet them and say hi, introduce himself, learn a name, Write it down so you don't forget it. And then when he comes back the next day or the next day that he's there and he's going to see that, that same guy again and he can remember his name and what has he done? He's made him a person just by learning his name. You know, learning a, a guy, in a situation like that, learning his name means more to him than buying him a sandwich. Really. I mean, the sandwich is good. Don't get me wrong. Lunch is coming. The sandwich is good. But learning somebody's name, valuing them as a person is even better. And who knows where a conversation could actually go. We said from there, you know, you could always raise, you, 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 you can mention, do you ever go over to the Friends of the Carpenter? And if you've been homeless in Vancouver a while, he would know what the Friends of the Carpenter is. That's a Jesus place over on the other side of town. And now we've introduced Jesus into the, we've, we've introduced faith into that conversation with that guy without pushing him in any direction. How do I engage with somebody who's outside at work or college? I know some guys who have engaged in their work, somebody who's, who has immigrated into the country and is working through the work system, and they've, they've gotten a job together there, and there's a connection there. And you can be a help. You can notice. You can engage. Maybe at school, college, or at school, one form or another. Whether it's immigrants who are outsiders or whether it's, whether it's uh, just somebody who's outside the normal social circles. There's the in-click and there's the out-click. It's not about a visa. It's not about a passport. It's about popularity. Would you be the one to take an interest? Would you be the one to extend mercy? They're not in your group. They don't have any claim to your group. But would you be the one to invite them into your thing? You might get asked, why do you care? Leave me alone is what they're saying. Well, I know what it's like to be left out until God invited me in. So I want to share that with somebody else. You can say, I want to share that with anyone. But maybe let's stick with, I want to share that with someone else because they're the one in this moment you've chosen or perhaps God has chosen that you would share that being invited in with. Now, I want us to think in closing what would be my next steps of mercy? What would be that place, that occasion where somebody who's left out and God has put me there, God has put me where I see it and I can't just ignore it or I shouldn't anymore. How would I extend mercy? What could be my next step of mercy in this week wherever I have connections with people who, whether it's by immigration or not, but need that invitation in that you know because you received God's invitation. You were a stranger, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you help us with that? Would you help us, Father, to... In fact, be 
inviters of mercy, initiators of mercy. Would you, would you, Father, help us to cross borders, to cross boundaries, that we might invite others in? Would you, would you make us gatekeepers, not who close doors and keep people out, but who find doors and open them that we might invite people in? Lord, we want to practice your mercy because you've given us mercy. We want to practice mercy because that's how we will know you. Lord, we want to practice mercy because we're your children and... Lord, you are merciful. You've been so to us. That's how we're your children. Lord, would you, would you set before us how we might next in this week take a step of mercy towards someone. Lord, we ask that even now in this offering as it is received, Lord, as we give, that you would use this to extend your mercy both here and far from here into eternal dwelling places. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.